droid has come now to be the same thing, to have the same meaning as robot, and it's not a useful term anymore. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book, I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, recently we had a discussion about uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and the importance of that science fiction film. And we talked about your history as a, uh, a professor of science fiction, your background in understanding science fiction film. And in that discussion, we mentioned briefly... Uh, a little bit about the new Star Wars movie and something about um, parsecs that was in the first film and then it right. got reintroduced in the second one or the, the most recent one. Right. And you have an entry that deals with that to some degree in your book. Right. It's, uh, it's something that has been discussed to death by Star Wars fans. I think probably the general public doesn't pay any attention to it. Um, but uh, Han Solo is said in the first film to have made the Kessel Run in 12, under 12 parsecs. Now, um, this caused uh, astronomers to get very upset because uh, parsec is a measure of distance, not of time. And presumably, if you're making wherever Kessel is, the, the run to it would be the same distance. Um, so no matter how you went, unless you're jumping into hyperspace or something. So uh, it didn't make any sense, except that uh, Lucas had mistaken the term as being part of a second or something, some some kind of uh, measure of time. And in his interviews, he switched around on this when asked about it. He uh, one time came up with a, a theory that fans had promoted that it is some uh, alternative means of travel and blah, 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 which I think is nonsense. That's just rationalization. I've actually seen another commentary of his in which he admitted forthrightly he got it mixed up. He didn't understand what a parsec was. But I was amused when the seventh film, The Force Awakens, just uh, came out that they included a scene in which somebody says of Han Solo, aren't you the one that made the Kessel Run and their 14 parsecs? And Solo says it was under 12 parsecs. And clearly they were just having fun sort of saying, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we know this is not right, but uh, we already are committed to it, so we're just going to say it again. They just doubled down on that one. Right. Now, there there is some analysis that uh, you showed me um, or pointed me to, and we will link to. Uh, one of the interpretations in the first film was that uh, it's possible that Han Solo was trying to gauge how savvy uh, Luke Skywalker was by uh -huh. making the claim he had made the Kessel Run and and twelve parsecs. Which, if you're using the term parsecs, I think you have to use it correctly. Probably, I, I don't understand right. that interpretation either. But uh, only experts would recognize what it is. So uh, it wouldn't be a joke that would reach many people. The only people would would understand would have to be scientists 
who work with the term regularly, and they're not going to think that's funny. And there is one other theory, which I find a little interesting, um, claiming that Han Solo had some way of taking a shortcut. Right. So it's as if saying, I ran the I ran the 100-yard dash in 80 yards. Yeah, but you wouldn't use the word in <laughs> that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's that uh, little syntactical problem, too. But any, however you slice it, uh, Star Wars seemingly has this uh, what's identified as a, a mistake. In it. And well, and uh, devil may care attitude toward physics and astronomy, um, unlike 2001: A Space Odyssey, which tried to be as scientific as possible. How did it strike you when you first saw the movie? Yeah, well, I I remember seeing it when it first came out, and I was all of um, uh, must have been 15 years old when the movie was released. And uh, my recollection is that this was a huge uh, movie. Of course, you remember in the 70s, in the early 70s, uh, uh, movies were just beginning to break through in a huge way that they hadn't before. There were multiplexes all of a sudden, and they were able to run movies on many screens. Sometimes they would run two for the first time ever, they were running movies on two screens in the same building, you know, which was a breakthrough in creating box office smashes. And the first real big blockbuster that really took off that I remember was Jaws um, that sort of uh, catapulted, went beyond uh, the Godfather movies, which was seemed to be the, the big thing prior to that. Right. You know, Jaws certainly created the idea of the summer blockbuster. Yeah. And created that whole phenomenon that now we live with forever after. But I I heard a, a piece on NPR recently saying that people who think Star Wars was the biggest hit movie ever are wrong. That if you count all the reruns of movies that have been revived and brought back into the theaters, um, nothing beats Gone with the Wind. Right. Yeah. Now, there, yeah, there is that phenomenon of revival and... Um television showings of movies and so on. Uh, How many eyeballs have been on the movie? I don't know. But when Star Wars was released, uh, there was a very intentional uh, marketing plan to turn it into a big blockbuster, which, of course, it was. Yeah, I had to stand in line at the end of the block outside the theater. (laughs) And my daughter and I got in among the very last people. I sat in the last row with my head resting against the back wall of the theater. And I was in a packed theater also. And it was an event. And at the time, it looked really modern. It looked very futuristic. And, um, of course, we already had uh, 2001 prior to that. But... That movie, for all of its visual beauty and everything, I don't think it got all the attention that Star Wars did. It got a lot of negative attention. Many Mm -hmm. people were confused by it, but it also didn't come across as a science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. Most people thought they knew what science fiction was, and it was about aliens or monsters or um, giant ants being created by atomic bomb testing or... And or fighting with aliens on other planets and you know, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that's not what 2001 was like. It was very much like the actual space exploration that was going on at the time. So it, it struck people as extrapolation 
uh, yes, but they, they didn't understand that this is really classic science fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, unlike 2001, Star Wars had a lot more uh, bombast to it. So it looked more like a traditional uh, Buck Rogers kind of science fiction, futuristic movie with lots of explosions and uh, you know things blowing up. And it was that sort of impact that I think really impressed the audience. And when you were in a big audience, full, you know, big theater, and they hadn't seen anything like that visually before, it was quite impressive. Yeah, if you look back at the older science fiction space movies, their special effects tend to be pretty pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Lucas certainly knocked the eyeballs out. But what jolted me... Uh, right at the beginning was the scrolling text going up the screen. Of course, everybody was puzzled by part four. <laughs> mm-hmm. it got, when it was reissued, it was re- renamed uh, A New Hope. Um, but when I saw that scrolling text, I said, oh, wow, he's alluding to the old movie serials because all those old serials, uh, whether they were uh, like a jungle Tarzan sort of thing or a Western or whatever, would always have a scrolling text that went up the screen and would fill you in on what you missed if you didn't see previous episodes. And, of course, every episode tended to end with a cliffhanger. Usually the hero was pretty clearly dead. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then... um, you would find out when you came back the next week, oh, no, there's this little bit you didn't see that explains how he rolled aside from the car before it crashed into the tree. But the Universal Studios that made the Flash Gordon Buck Rogers serials in the 1939-1940 used that scrolling text, but in a different way. They had it go scrolling off into space so it, it uh, narrowed as it went away from you. And it was a really cool effect. And clearly, that's what exactly what Lucas had in mind when he was doing the titles for Star Wars. He, he wanted to say, okay, this is going to be something that's like something you know, that is the old Flash Gordon movies, but it's going to be so much better. <laughs> well, it's the special effects, isn't it, that really set it apart well almost everything was better the photography the mm-hmm. acting the costumes yes um yeah the thing is that the whole art direction yeah, yeah. It, when the um uh, the old flash gordon and buck rogers serials were made um they were aimed at a juvenile audience and there were these saturday matinees and kids could get in for I think 10 cents at first and I don't remember what it was when I went and you'd see a bunch of cartoons and um, and they always had a serial and then they would have a, a feature or something um, a comedy of some kind usually so um, if you're 10 years old and you see those old things you might say oh wow this is really amazing and now Lucas and I are both about the same age and we would have seen He's not in the movie theater, but on TV, because mm-hmm. they used to rerun Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon on television quite frequently. And when you're really young, they could look cool. But when you're a little older and look back at them and say, wow, these are really crude. And so I think what Lucas was trying to do is recapture that sense of wonder that we talked about when we were discussing 2001 
if you're very young and you see that sort of thing and think, ah, oh, what's how transporting and exciting this is, he's trying to create that same sense of wonder, but now justify it for an adult audience and more sophisticated kids, too, by this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the connection with this. I, I regularly do a, a lecture where I show clips from the Star Wars movies and compare them to the old Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers ones. And there's actually a great debt owed uh, to them. Um, One of the things to know is that uh, Lucas's first successful film was American Graffiti. And I think a lot of people have seen that. I'm kind of fond of it because a a little bit of it was shot in my hometown of Petaluma, California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But, it was a nostalgia film. It's about growing up in the 50s in uh, Northern California. And I think that it really reveals his bias generally, that he's a nostalgist. He loves to look backward. And what he's looking backward to in Star Wars is the past of science fiction, the old kind of science fiction that had been around for a long, long time. And you could say that's the connection between American Graffiti and Star Wars. Right. Is just that very thing. He's going back to the 19 or 1960. Where were you in 62, right? Was the American Graffiti uh, slogan. But then, um, uh, in a way, Star Wars looks like a, you know, a, a high end production of a science fiction film that could have been made in 62 or. Or even earlier. Or 1940. (laughs) Or 1940, if they had the equipment, yeah. Yeah. So he has said that he originally wanted to make a a, um, Flash Gordon film, but at that point, he wasn't so famous and influential, he didn't get the rights. And so he just made up his own story with his own characters, but he borrowed a lot. Um, Now, the first science fiction hero with a big mass popular following was Buck Rogers, and he was supposed to live in the 25th century. Uh, it was a novel in 1928 and turned into a very awkwardly drawn but hugely successful comic strip in 1929. And it continued for many, many years. When I was a kid in high school, junior high and high school, I would tell people sometimes that I was reading science fiction. And if they didn't read science fiction themselves, their immediate reaction was, oh, that Buck Rogers stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Buck Rogers was the Star Wars of its day. That's what people thought the stereotype of science fiction was. And um, one of the things that happened was because it becomes so popular, um, five years later, Alex Raymond creates Flash Gordon. Now, Flash Gordon was a much less original strip. In fact, the plots are pretty stupid uh, compared to Buck Rogers. But he was a much better artist, and he was also very interested in drawing women in scanty clothing, uh, especially Flash's companion, Dale Arden, who Mm -hmm. has a name that suggests a certain Arden personality, although there's never any romance between them. Because these were kids' movies, right? Um, but she's still very sexy, and, um, and he's always finding excuses to to make uh, women's bodies show up in an attractive way. Hmm. Well, between 1936 and 1940, we have these four serials: Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, 
and Buck Rogers. And all of them starred the same actor we talked about uh, when we did our discussion of Bust, Buster Crab. Mm-hmm. Um, these, uh, the serials were shown just this one episode at a time, so that's why this, the scrolling text that I mentioned before. And um, one of the things to note is that in Flash Gordon, the evil villain is Emperor Ming the Merciless. This, this was played by a German actor, but he is given a Chinese name, and the planet he rules over is called Mongo, um, which is t- alluding to Mongolia, which is now partly in China. Uh, and there was this sort of prejudice against Asians involved, in, in it. and that's true in the original comic strip as well, that the... Um, the whole Flash Gordon idea, both in the movies and there in the comic strip, was sort of anti-Asian. But that changed, interestingly, because when World War II broke out, um, the Japanese invaded China, and all of a sudden, the Chinese were seen by America as, as the good Asians and the Japanese as the bad Asians. And that had some interesting effects on, on popular culture. And, and what they did in the Flash Gordon movie was to introduce a sympathetic Chinese prince called Prince Talin. Now, one of the peculiar things about this, this is the 25th century. Okay, we're way, way past the modern democratic age of now, but we've got princes and princesses and kings and, and so on running around in it. And that's one of the things that gets get picked up right away into the Star Wars sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. The other thing about um, these serials was that uh, Buck Rogers had a sidekick named Buddy. Uh, young teenager and this was a really common thing for adventure heroes in the comic strips and in the movies to do because it's supposed to give the kids watching it something to identify with so you know you're you're 15 16 um, but you still get to go on huge adventures with this guy all over the place and to some extent the relationship between han solo who is sort of a uh, a mentor even though Yoda is the ultimate mentor, that Luke Skywalker is the young guy who's learning everything, and he fits that uh, buddy role pretty well. Um, another thing that is very common in at Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon is the influence of Art Deco, and I won't go into any detail about that, but the architecture and the weapons and so on often have fins on them. Mm-hmm. And yeah decorative wig that gets picked up in some of the scenes in uh, Star Wars as well. But um, one of the things that uh, about rocket ships that is really different is if you look at the old Flash Gordon, he, he has this rocket ship, which is pretty clearly dangling from a string and a thread. Uh, you can't see it, but that's the way it looks. And when it comes in for a landing, instead of coming down on its rear end, uh, it circles for a landing like, like an airplane. And the exhaust is shown as it looks like they've just stuck a sparkler in there and there's all these sparks coming out. So it just doesn't look anything like a real rocket ship. So one of the things that um, Lucas was particularly concerned about was trying to make the rockets look much more realistic. Interestingly, he sort of avoids having rockets taking off and landing in the atmosphere. You see almost always 
um, them in action in a vacuum in space. But the way that he has them behave and look uh, has very little to do with the real space travel. Um, for instance, it's often noted that you hear all these big roars and rumbles. You shouldn't be able to hear any roar and rumble except in your own vehicle because space cannot transmit sound. But also the the vehicles, especially the X-Wing fighters and some of the others, are, are streamlined. That's only useful for uh spaceships that might be maneuvering in an atmosphere um and you can say well these are meant to land in an atmosphere sometimes so they need that ability but in fact when the x-wings open their wings up to prepare to maneuver and then start swooping around that's totally impossible <laughs> it doesn't well you could do it but it would have no effect because there's no air resistance to make those wings act so and you can't make those kinds of swooping gestures in space what Lucas did is uh, he was charmed by some dogfight footage that he'd seen in movies from World War II era, and he wanted the same feeling. And he said in there was one documentary in which he said he actually brought in some footage and said, look, this is what I want the attack on the Death Star to look like. And he had uh, his people actually trace the path of some of the old airplanes to then use for the route of the rocket ships, the X-wing fighters, and and that's very recognizable. I mean, if you know you're if you're you're visually literate, you'd recognize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, Ming the Merciless at one point decides he's going to destroy Earth, and he creates this huge gun that's meant to suck all the oxygen out of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, sort of a subtle way of killing people off, but still a planet buster. And, of course, we have the Death Star in Star Wars. Uh, it does much the same thing, only a much grander scale. One of the things I noticed about the new movie, by the way, um, which I thought was very well done, and I enjoyed it quite a lot, um, but I thought there is very little that's new or interesting that's different from what Star Wars has done before. And it's like they said, okay, we, the Death Star was a big hit. Let's make another bigger Death Star that's even larger. And then the attack on it is almost identical in the, the whole strategy and the look of it and everything. And I found that kind of disappointing. Mm. Uh, I think it's uh, a, an example of, of these series, the Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Star Wars. You you know, at some point you do have to go back and give the audience what they want, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's what they were thinking, obviously. But I, I thought more highly of J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams is the director of the new. Right, the, the right. Latest yeah, Lucas has let go of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing that irritated me when uh, the droids showed up was calling r2d2 a droid and the thing is that we used to have a fairly firm meaning for android and an android is a andros greek oid similar to uh, a mechanical per- or artificial person it looks like a person looks like a human being mm. So if you have a robot that does not look like a human being, that would not be an android. Of course, he uses the abbreviation droid yeah. without the andro. 
Um, but the the result is the droid has come now to be the same thing, have the same meaning as robot, and it's not a useful term anymore. <laughs> uh, just been kind of destroyed by that. I don't know if that was a mistake on his part or, or just a deliberate choice. Well, the operating system some of us have on our phones has yes. kind of helped that along right, too. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's certainly not human shaped. One of the weird things about Flash Gordon is that each adventure was in a different climate, and it was pretty arbitrary. He would be in a snow kingdom, uh, then he would be in a desert kingdom, he would be in a forest kingdom, and he would have different kinds of adventures. Lucas pushed that to a really absurd extent by having whole planets seemingly have the same climate, so you're in a on a jungle world or an ice world or, or whatever, um, which just struck me as kind of parochial, but it's, it's sure showy. It's, it's more exciting than just saying, well, we're in another part of Mongo now. We've instead, we've gone to a completely different planet and that helps the plot along, of course. Now, what, what's going on in the creation of Star Wars is something that, uh, it was really revolutionary for the 70s and is still going on. Uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg both had decided that it would be cool to take these really old B movie and I don't know, was there something below B, C or D? Old adventure films that were never taken seriously by anybody over the age of 10 and then try to remake them taking the basic ideas, the kinds of plots, the kind of dialogue and so on, but do them really well, make them a movies Mm -hmm. and Indiana Jones and um, Star Wars were the real pioneering efforts in this direction. And uh, they were hugely successful. Of course. Yeah. The, the big adventure and the big, big adventure uh, exotic settings on earth and the big space movies, right? (laughs) Man, they're, they're both nostalgia films. You know, Lucas starts uh, Star Wars with the words long ago. Mm-hmm. So um, he's telling us. And, and when interviewed, he used to often say, uh, my movie's not science fiction. You shouldn't criticize it as science fiction. It's a, a kind of fantasy world. And more recently, he's been argued with so much that he's saying, okay, it's a kind of science fiction, but it's a, a nostalgia science fiction, a fantasy science fiction. Um, it's um, something that, some that part of it is what we call space opera, which is uh, taken from a horse opera for cowboys, uh, cowboy pictures. And uh, space opera are big galactic spanning adventures, often with huge wars between rival beings and uh, lots of space travel and uh, power struggles and so on. And that's uh, something that goes back all the way to Edgar Rice Burroughs, 1912, A Princess of Mars. Yeah. Um, where he has uh, the princess, he has the sword fights, um, he has sort of dragon-like beings on Mars, but it's also science fiction. So it's science fiction and fantasy. But he was the first one to pioneer this idea of blending together uh, medieval fantasy and futuristic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the genre that Star Wars belongs to. Now there's a and there's another side of uh, science fiction that uh, we associate with Ray Bradbury or the Twilight Zone that are more like 
uh, thought pieces, right? Right, or they're not fantasy. They're just alternate. They use space. They use aliens. They use all of the science fiction uh, tropes or motifs uh, and bring them in to make some philosophical point or some some point about humans and humanity. And that's one thing that I notice about Star Wars is, of course, there are, there is commentary that's relevant to humanity, but that isn't really the main point. The main point is is this. Uh, fantasy, building this fantasy world and building this other reality. Yeah, deep space, but not deep thought. <laughs> right. Okay. There you go. Um, of course, the, those old uh, films also resemble Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which combined um, big space adventure uh, with really developing characters and, and being thoughtful and exploring ideas, but also injected comedy into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so in this case, the, the comic character is Chewbacca, and we also have uh, C-3PO, mm-hmm. who is also a comic character, and very deliberately designed that way, as, as Lucas has said. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, I, I decided to, to see how much Lucas really owed to those old serials. I sat down and watched all of them, which took a lot time and it was pretty hard to bear actually but there is a an interesting adventure in which flash gordon encounters the fire people Mm. the fire people are little short guys who wear woolly costumes and have frizzy hair and live in a forest which is composed entirely it looks like of driftwood or something it's all dry branches um i don't know why they did that but um maybe because then leaves and needles didn't get in the way of the camera when they were shooting but they also use fire a lot and they stick torches right into the trees which seems like a dumb idea if you're living in a forest composed of dead branches and um, they are both primitive and advanced. They they fight with blow darts, for instance, um, but they also have a ray gun, and the ray gun is made of wood. Mm-hmm. So this sort of high-low ad- uh, combination, advanced technology and primitive technology being combined in the same thing is very much a part of this whole Flash Gordon story. They also communicate by blowing on animal horns, and they swing from vines around their forest, just like Tarzan. Mm-hmm. So almost every shot in the Ewok sequence in Return of the Jedi at the beginning is taken right out of that episode from Flash with the Fire People. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. And uh, the Ewoks are, you know, a cuter, <laughs> more fully developed uh, sort of alien version of the Fire People. Mm-hmm. And there are torches stuck in their trees, too. Um, also, one, one of the things I remembered most vividly seeing when I was a kid on TV was an episode in which Flash is captured and held on Sky City. Sky City is this uh, sort of flying saucer-shaped platform wobbling up in the air. It wobbles quite a bit. It seems like you'd get seasick being on it. And, and of course, that's the inspiration for Cloud City in The Empire Strikes Back, and Cloud City is just much more cool looking. Uh, The technology involved in Flash Gordon is especially crude because he's put to work with Dr. Sarkoff, his scientist companion, uh, shoveling 
radium into uh, big ovens, which are powering the, the city and has such a, a crude idea of uh, radium power being compared to coal being shoveled into ovens and the furnaces in the bottom of an old steamship or something. Um, and of course, one of the things that's notable about Star Wars, although you see a lot of technology, you do not see the science. You, there are no scientists. You don't see the science behind it. You don't see science being invented, except that, you know, Darth Vader has come up with this Death Star, but we don't know how he's come up with it. It's the mystical side of things, the force that's really important. Um, never been able to understand logically why, if you can build something like the Death Star, you would want to bother having a sword fight with somebody with a lightsaber. Um, obviously, you could stand a couple of miles away and vaporize your opponents a lot less risky and easier than, than having a prolonged duel. But it, it all dates back to the old Edgar Rice Burroughs idea that uh, medieval sword fights are cool. And so let's have them in a science fiction story. Mm-hmm. Right. Another uh, thing that comes to mind, I remember when the first Star Wars movie was released, uh, there was a lot of talk about how much it was like an old Western also. Yeah. And especially that bar scene where yes. Hans, Han Solo sits around and there's all these tough guys <laughs> from from all around the galaxy right. that have gathered in this one place. And uh, he, he's got to know his way around to to make way, make his way. Yeah, that's obviously a tribute to the old Westerns, no question about it. And they return to it in the uh, in the latest film. Um, one of the things to note about uh, the Emperor Ming is that his palace guards wear helmets, which are vaguely modeled on Roman soldiers' helmets, and the stormtrooper helmets look like a sleeker, more modernized version of the same thing, but they obviously have the same inspiration. One thing that's a cliche in all kinds of adventure stories where where the hero gets imprisoned, um, the, he seizes a guard, puts on the guard's costume, and escapes. And, you yes. know, every, most people encounter that first in The Wizard of Oz. But Flash did this. He, he knocks out a guard and then puts on his uniform, and so does Luke Skywalker. Um, so we have, you know, really quite uh, quite a lot of of this kind of thing. Now, there are also some interesting women characters in um, Buck Rogers has his sidekick is uh, Wilma Deering, and she's actually a, a very political, important ruler. She, she uh, acts as a military uh, person. She's a scientist. She's an ambassador. She does all kinds of things. And although Leah has this, status as a princess um she's pretty much we see her out on her own and not in authority ruling over anything uh in the new movie she's given a backstory of a kind just very briefly she's said to have been a general with uh, you know fighting a lot in the rebellion against the dark forces um but that's sort of making up for what really isn't there in the original Star Wars movies where she plays much more the role of the the woman who gets captured and needs to be rescued and is not actually a very effective fighter i won't go into that in detail here um but um i went through and, and examined all of the the scenes in which she fights and most of the time she's either making mistakes or getting wounded or needing to be rescued. Um, mm-hmm. 
she does make a few effective shots, but there's a really a strong contrast um, with in, in uh, Wilma Deering being in prison. Uh, she lures the guard over and manages to grab his ray pistol um, and knock him out with it and then uh, use it to open the door of her cell and go off and rescue Flash. Mm-hmm which is uh, much more heroic than there's the famous scene that, that people remember when uh, Han Solo has been sealed in carbonite and Leia comes to rescue him. To me, dramatically, the interesting thing about that, unlike the Wilma Daring thing where she is portrayed, no question, as heroic. From, she's very heroic, very strong. She leads the way um, when, when she grabs uh, Buck and Buddy and gets them away from the slavery they've been in she's the one that grabs some grenades on the way out they're just coughing and trying to get out of there she's really in charge leo when she shows up you don't know it's leia so that kind of robs her of her heroic credit right away at the beginning is this strange mask with the voice filter very deep and yes yeah definitely masculine sort of monkey-like looking the instant that helmet comes up and off, he says, who are you? And so says, who are you? She says, someone who loves you. And then they kiss. So, yes, she's doing something heroic. But as far as what her action on the screen, it's being a beautiful woman who's being loved and kissing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, I think... Lucas, like a lot of young and some not so young viewers of Star Wars, was kind of in love with her and um, liked the idea of uh, her having adventures. But uh, when push comes to shove, he he really feminizes her as much as possible. And and part of the difference there is that these old serials, of course, again, were aimed at very young boys who were not so interested in, in sexy women. There is a scene in Flash Gordon where Dale Arden has been captured by um, the king of the Hawkmen. And he's this big, fat, slob, really evil villain who turns out to be an ally later. He sort of converts. But um, she is dressed in a revealing costume with a bare midriff, although her navel is not showing because the Hollywood production code banned the showing of navels Mm -hmm. in movies. So... All during their 40s and 50s, you're never going to see a belly button. Um, but anyway, she's uh, she's he's forced her to put on this revealing costume and then is threatening to loose this savage bear on her uh, if, if she won't marry him. Now, in the old cartoons, uh, the villain was always chasing the woman. Um, but what he wanted to do when he caught her was never at, made explicit or even very strongly suggested. Uh, Betty Boop came about as close as mm-hmm. anybody. Um, but uh, that's pretty much the same situation when Leia is captured by Jabba the Hutt and put in revealing clothing. Uh, and the, that whole um, idea of the woman in peril in a brass bikini is a real old science fiction cliche. Mm-hmm. Right. There's also an episode of Flash Gordon, which was both in the comic strip and in the serial, where he is in the Snow Kingdom and deals with Princess Freya, 
F-R-I-A, her name suggesting cold and snow and so on. She has a very odd costume. It, it looks like it's a one-piece bathing suit, and then she had a transparent deli, belly dancer's costume put on over it. Um, very sexy looking. And her hair is done up in braids and then coiled on the sides of her head. So um, Leia's famous, she has several hairdos in the movie, but the one everybody remembers is the one in the, the opening scene where... Uh, she has it coiled on the side of her head, but not braided, but pretty clearly it's a, a tribute to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're a fan of the Hardware Wars parody, you'll remember that Princess Leia has two Danishes on the side of her head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, used, I used to show that to my students. And it yeah. must be up on YouTube someplace. Now. It's yeah. hilarious. Hardware Wars. Yeah. <laughs> if you find it, let's make a link to it. Um, and uh, Wilma Deering is shown especially as being very technically competent. There's a scene where Leia is trying to fix something on board the ship, and she, he, Han Solo comes and tries to help her and starts flirting with her, and she's arguing with him, and she manages to do it with great difficulty. She doesn't have evidently much upper body strength because turning this handle that she's trying to tighten, it just really, really difficult. She manages to hurt herself as she's doing it. Later, we see her with a chain strangling this enormous man-mountain monster, Jabba the Hutt, um, and, and somehow she must have been really working out because she's got a lot of more upper body mm-hmm, strength mm-hmm. than that time. We also see uh, Dale Arden fight sometimes in the uh, Flash Gordon scenes. Um, the technology is, of course, infinitely more well depicted in Star Wars, even when it's fantastic and scientifically absurd, it's still fun to watch and in real detail. Um, but to give just one example, there's uh, when they, when Flash fires his ray pistol, the effect that they used was just to go over the film emulsion frame by frame and put actual scratches in the emulsion which you can see these scratches sort of emanating out jaggedly from his gun. And you got to think, well, the, the Star Wars lightsabers are a lot cooler right. than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the thing about Star Wars is that it had a double effect on the science fiction audience. On the one hand, for people who hadn't really followed science fiction very much, it opened it up, and we got a whole lot of people. There's a certain number who were Star Wars fans and Star Wars fans only and continued to be, and that was just what they loved. Then there was some bleeding over from Star Trek, and I don't want to go into the whole Star Trek, Star Wars uh, thing, but... Um, there was also some of them who said, okay, this is kind of interesting stuff. Maybe I'll start looking at other science fiction. And some of them began to actually read science fiction. So we've had a, a, a prolongation of science fiction and novels in particular. Um, this period marked the end of the domination of the short story in science mm-hmm. fiction. Science fiction was originally mostly short stories. If you look at Ray Bradbury's work, for instance, uh, Martian Chronicles especially, it's just a tissue of short stories that were published separately, sort of sometimes rather awkwardly joined together and made into a sort of pseudo-novel. Novels were the exception in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and well into the 60s. 
But but in the seventies, there is this transition, and now uh, science fiction is almost exclusively novels, and uh, it's the very narrow uh, literary types who tend to still read the the short stories of, of somebody like Ursula Le Guin, who I think is a terrific writer who's in her eighties and still writing short story science mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah. So, um, at any rate, it meant for a much bigger audience for science fiction, particularly science fiction in film and for well-made films with Alien and all the other things that have followed, including most recently The Martian. However, for people who had already been science fiction fans through reading, like me, people who were interested in mainly for the ideas it contained, it was a huge setback. And in that movie theater, I was sitting partly excited, saying, wow, this has never been done this well before. And at the same time, saying, boy, this is really a rehash of the stuff we thought was antiquated a couple of decades ago. This is a looking back, back, back into the early crude days of science fiction before it started to address really complex problems and be influenced by writers like Kafka uh, and Borges and so on. There were, it, science fiction in the 70s had developed, there was a, something called new wave science fiction, which began to use experimental literary techniques, especially influenced by writers like James Joyce. Um, a lot of really thoughtful, intellectually stimulating science fiction. That pretty much got, just got wiped out of the public consciousness. Um, it, n- n- people never became aware of it. Science fiction got stereotyped once and for all as simple-minded adventure stories with a lot mm-hmm. of action. And um, it, it had this double effect on science fiction. On the one hand, as I say, it, it led more readers into reading it. So in, maybe in the long run, it was beneficial for written science fiction that uh, they probably do have a larger audience now. Well, there's a, a bit of a parallel, too, in, in just in movie making generally, because at the time, Star Wars and Jaws and these these new look blockbuster movies were coming out and these Indiana Jones and these movies that looked so splashy in a way that movies never had before, um, even movies that tried to put in a lot of special effects didn't have that much flash to them because a lot of computer generated effects were not available to older filmmakers also was came along at a time when it looked like uh art movies might start actually having some cachet uh here in america and it's hard to hard to believe that college students in particular used to eagerly go in the 60s to see the the latest French New Wave film that was opening at the local art theater. It is hard to believe. And yeah, if you look at it now, it's... it's And, you know, if you went to a film, you, you sort of half expected to see subtitles. Yeah, it's a different world. It's a different world. It's hard to imagine uh, that uh, all those European directors, Godard and Bergman and... and um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa, Japanese film. Who influenced yeah, Lucas. who influenced Lucas. All of these uh, foreign directors were having, a, seemingly having a lot of effect on what people looked at as being those real movies. And then uh, uh, Lucas and, and um, Spielberg come in and revive this kind of what you, what a lot of people might call kind of trashier movie looks or, or themes. But at the same time, they pushed, uh, 
they really push the envelope on the facts and um now you can see things going in all kinds of different directions where there are art movies that have a really, really slick and great look to them. Right. I was reminded uh, of another um, thing about the subtitles. You know, uh, Americans are notoriously allergic to subtitles. I mean, they, in the 60s, it was exciting. But uh, by the mid-70s, it was really hard to get a movie in a theater that had subtitles. And in the 60s, the Russians, the Soviet Union, made a terrific production of Tolstoy's War and Peace, um, the, an eight-hour, you know, that's a 1,200-page book, so eight hours is not too much. And I only saw half of it. Unfortunately, I was in San Francisco at the time on a, on a visit, and uh, I got to see the first half, and then after four hours, the nose came up and screamed, next week, <laughs> see the second half. And I never got to see the second half. But now um, the History Channel, the Lifetime Channel, and one other are doing a version of War and Peace, which the producers say is a kind of tribute, a remake of that Russian one. Only, and, and all I can see, and it's beautifully done, I've been watching it, it's very nice, but I don't think a great film. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, what's its improvement over the Russian one? It's in English. There you go, yeah. Except when they sing. When they sing, they sing in, in Russian. Okay. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably enough about that. I think so, too. Well, uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you, Tom. See you later. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.